Hey, thank you all for coming today. My name is Brianna Reese, and I'm the student director here at the Arlen Spectre Center. Today, our host is Tim Malbeck, and he will be talking about hip hop and the narrative of marginal marginalization. Now, I'd like to turn it over to you, Matt. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> you all can respond to that, it's okay. Um, so as Brianna said, I'm Timothy Welbeck. I'm an attorney by training, but I also teach here. I have the great privilege of teaching here. I teach the African American experience. I also teach red and blue America political subcultures in the US. And I guess what brought me here is I'm a hip hop artist too. So um, tonight I'm going to be talking to you uh, about the topic, No City for Young Men, Hip Hop and the Narrative of Marginalization. And and the reason why I call it that is because regardless of what city you go to, whether you go to East New York or you go to the North, North Philadelphia or the South Side of Chicago, West Baltimore, West Atlanta, you go to Compton, you'll see similar ideas. You'll see similar constructions of cities, if you will. You'll see similar, like, well, let me see if it's going to be all right. Um, you, you will see not only that, but if you take the time to listen to people, you'll hear similar stories. And in the same way that throughout our nation's history, we've had people document their experience, um, one of the more notable ways is, uh, for African Americans has been through the, through the tool of slave narratives. Hip hop has been playing that role since its inception 43 years ago, this broader idea that hip hop can not only communicate the lived experience of those who've been relegated to the margins, it can also give firsthand accounts of what it means to be subjected to abject poverty. What does it mean to live in the most undesirable part of your city? What does it mean to be overexposed to drug culture and then to be penalized for something that you had no, no control over your exposure to? What does it mean to always constantly have to negotiate violence? What does it mean to bear the stigma of being someone who's unwanted? What does that look like? What does that sound like? And in many ways, hip hop is that. It is a response from that. Hip hop emerged from the South Bronx in 1973 is what we tell people conventionally. And we tell them that in the time in which that we see hip hop emerging in that way, one of the things that was happening in the time prior to that was Robert Moses, one of the great urban planners in US history, had this grand vision of New York. And one of the things he wanted to do was create what's called the Cross Bronx Expressway. The problem is where he wanted to put it was in the middle of where people were living. And so he puts this Cross Bronx Expressway, he convinces city planners to to erect this, this expressway in the middle of people's homes. And a vibrant manufacturing in industry collapses. People who have the means leave, but those who don't are displaced. 113 roads, avenues, and streets are completely uprooted. School systems fall apart. The, the per capita income drops to about $10,000 a year, less per person if you calculate it in today's money. They say that the youth unemployment rate skyrockets up to 60%. Some people anecdotally say it rose up to 80%. And so in the midst of all of this, hip hop responds, it comes out of this. And you see this ingenuity of these young people to create music players, music instruments out of music players, to create music when you can't sing or play instruments. This idea of taking someone else's music, reinventing it, finding something new to build out of it. And in the process of doing that, they create what we now call hip hop. Early on, particularly in this first couple of years, it was an avant-garde avant way to rock the party. You find new ways to create chants, call and responses. The idea is to keep the thing moving, keep people excited, keep people entertained with 
slowly but surely as hip-hop begins to come of age, what you begin to see is hip-hop begins to, to wrestle with the dynamics of what it comes out of. And one of the earliest hip-hop songs that we see commercially is The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Certainly there was other recorded songs before that. Most notably, the song that gets everybody's attention is Rapper's Delight in 79. But what we see, what we see then is the message comes out in 1981 and it's talking about what it means to live in the Bronx in the aftermath of the erection of the Cross Bronx Expressway. You see this idea of people talking about roaches in the front room, rats in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. You see people talking about double-digit inflation. You hear people talking about dilapidated housing, finding difficulty to have a job, having your car repossessed. And in many ways, we're seeing people responding to this reality. Tana Hesse Coates, in the case of reparations, talks to us about how 35 years of housing discrimination creates these ghettos that we look at now. These ghettos are not by design. I mean, they're not by accident, but they are by design. And the way in which people like Cool Herc, who is what we call the grandfather of hip hop, the godfather of hip hop, he's coming, he's responding to this reality. Grandmaster Flash, the Furious Five, most notably Melly Mel, he's responding to this reality of what it means to be in the aftermath, in the shadow, if you will, of this racialized segregation that then puts people, if you will, to the outskirts, relegates them to margins. And so the first song I'm going to do for you all tonight is entitled No City for Young Men. And it's talking about that very idea. It starts off with the line, there is no city for young men to hope to grow old in. Every city has a ghetto with a trap that closes. Because no matter where you look, no matter how far you go, there's a similar song, there's a similar story that's being said, that's being told in the life. Tim, we can take, we can go off camera for a okay. second, let your friend okay. set up, and then we'll go right back. Oh, okay. I didn't realize we could do that. Yeah. Technology is amazing. Technology is amazing. Of course. It's amazing. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay. So this is called No City for Young Men. Title track. Can you all hear me? There is no city for young men to hope to grow old in. Every city has to get over the trap that closes. On both ends, it ensnares them to no end. It'll make alcohol in a coke binge and old bread in schools that they lack an intelligence quotient. So they hold them back, tell them they cause a commotion. It gives them riddling doses that a cripple emotions. It's just the beginning of a terrible omen. They see the grass is green on the lawns of suburban men. But it's hard to reach because the way the system burdens them. So they start playing in the weed they're observing. There. Even though playing in the weed leaves them worse, but where we will encouragement, we will some nourishment. We need to escape before these streets go murder them. They don't hear well done from a dad who's involved, so they just make the dance clap for a round of applause. These are the facts. They should be making you mad. Reach back, pull these boys out of the trap. These are the facts. They should be making you sad. Reach back, pull these boys out of the trap. These are the facts. They should be making you act. Reach back and pull these boys out of the trap. Cause everywhere I go, they're undone, they're duck in. That's why I say there is no. I heard from this ancient alien who hit me to some life game with the type of phrases that bloom us the rounds that I'm saying. He said your morals corona go out the window when you see your boy's wardrobe and they all have Nintendo weeks. And your child is down on her knees, crying hard up to God for a barber with cheese. It's just a problem indeed. 
But even the word of God says don't despise fleas robbing the eat. We write people off and relegate them to margins, diminish them with sentences with little mention of artists. Calling crabs in a barrel like they're an actual rabbit in class. Barrels aren't a crab's natural habitat. In fact, that habitat is engrossed in tragedy. We call it a jungle and say folks live savagely. You put any man in the box, he will grow up dastardly. But we turn a blind eye like we don't know what's happening. It is the trap we flee. It should be making you mad. Reach back. Pull these boys out of the trap. These are the facts. It should be making you sad. Reach back. Pull these boys out of the trap. These are the facts. It should be making you act. Reach back. And pull these boys out of the trap. Cause everywhere I go, they're undone or done in. That's why I say there is no city for young men. So that's called No City for Young Men. And, and I start off by saying, and I guess in rap form, what I have been saying from the beginning, regardless of what state you go to, regardless of what major city you go to, ghettos look the same. The hood looks the same. One of the things that makes it different, maybe some regional differences in geography. Maybe you have some spices here and there, architecture that are different, but the hood looks the same in most places. India said there are places in Havana that remind her of Savannah. She talks about the, that, that this idea of ghettoization is a global phenomenon within the US. We see it, and we see it plainly. And it's about broader systems and the interplay of them and how they marginalize and oppress people. Here, I tell you that there's no city for young men to hope to grow old in. Every city has a ghetto with a trap that closes on both ends and ensnares them to no end. It'll make alcohol and a coke binge an old friend. And I say that, I start there because of this universality of this type of oppression. And I talk about this idea that oftentimes you'll see people and they'll try to escape this reality at times with substance abuse. And so, so oftentimes you'll see people who are coping with depression and they'll self-medicate. Sometimes you self-medicate with alcohol, sometimes you self-medicate with marijuana, sometimes you self-medicate with other substances. What you began to see happening then, from there, this larger climate is then unfolding around them. Their schools say they lack an intelligence quotient, so they hold them back till them, they cause them commotion, they give them Ritalin doses out of crippled emotions. It's just the beginning of a terrible omen. And so here we see not only are they facing adversity at home, but then when they leave the home, and go outside and go into schools, the schools are saying that you are fundamentally deficient. There's something inherently lacking in you. There's something pathological about you that is going to, that's going to hinder your ability to grow and to flourish and to thrive. And not only that, but we also are seeing this broader idea about how particularly young black and young brown um, girls and boys are told at a very early age that their disorderly conduct is unusual for children even of their age, and we see that, that discipline of young, young black and brown children differs from their white counterparts as early as three to five years old. And oftentimes what we see, particularly in young men of color, is this broader idea of giving them things to subdue them in class, give them Ritalin doses that are crippled emotions. And often what happens to people who've been on Ritalin is once they outgrow Ritalin, again, they'll begin to self-medicate because that's the only way that they have been, that's the only way in which they have found that's sufficient to allow them to have some, some form of control over their deportment and the like. And so they start looking, oftentimes, you'll see them going to marijuana. And so, and that's where I start to use this, this layered metaphor. And I talk about, uh, so they start, so they see the grass is green on the lawns of suburban men, but it's hard to reach because of the way the system burdens them. 
So they start playing in the weed, they're observing there, even though playing in the weed leaves them worse for wear, weed for encouragement, weed for some nourishment, weed to escape before these streets go murder them. And so what I'm saying here is this broader idea that all of us want a better life, however we contextualize that, whatever that means for us. And oftentimes the American dream tells us that we're supposed to aspire for the house on the hill with the picket fences. And so these young men, these young women, they see the grass is green, the grass is greener on the lawns of suburban men. But they know that there are structural impediments, there are systematic imbalances that make it more difficult for them to reach that reality. So they start playing in the weeds because they can't reach the grass, so that's where the metaphor gets layered. Because now they're looking at weed for encouragement, weed for some nourishment, weed to escape before the streets go murder them. They're looking for marijuana as a means not only to escape, but to cope with that reality. But then in the second verse, I talk about this broader idea about how we should have empathy for these people in these positions. Oftentimes, we see people standing on street corners, and we see people who, are, uh, who have violated some form of our criminal law, some, some statute, and, and we believe as though they are irredeemable. And so, and I allude to, so Andre Benjamin is a rapper, goes by Andre 3000, group called Outkast, they kind of expanded, broke my heart. <laughs> I grew up in the Atlanta area. Um, well, they're not, they're not working together anymore. But he has a verse and a song on Big Boys called Royal Flush. And in it, he talks about this idea of how when your child is desperate to eat at night, and your child's dream is not for a new Nintendo Wii or new clothes, but your child is just desperate to eat something nourishing, and you don't have the means to go and provide that in uh, any type of substantive way, you're put, you're put in a precarious situation. Andre raps this, but this is what he's saying. And then he says, so you've got two options. You can go and try to go to the vocational route and maybe get a job in heated and air, or you can kind of stand on the corner and play the odds there. But what happens there is we call this whole idea of standing on the corner, it's called a trap. We call it trapping. Um, and to talk about it in a more broader sense, um, it's a form, a subgenre of hip hop that emerged definitively in the early 2000s, but there are precursors to that in the late 90s with the workings of the Ghetto Boys, UGK out of Port Arthur, Texas, or um, A Ball and MJG and 36 Mafia out of Memphis. But what happens in Atlanta in the late 90s, early 2000s, you start seeing some of Atlanta's music morphing in terms of creating a more definitive sound that's focusing on this, on this heavy bass, 808 drum patterns, and, and the content was talking about this idea of selling drugs, and this idea of trying to survive in this reality. So rappers you may be familiar with, T.I., Young Jeezy, Gucci Mane, they cut their teeth on this type of content, and this is actually what made them household names. And they call, this, they call what they're doing trapping because it is a trap. They know that if I'm selling, if I'm selling illegal drugs, the, the greater likelihood is that I'm going to end up in a box, a cage, a prison, or I'm going to end up in, or I'm going to end up in a box, a coffin. I'm going to end up dead or in prison. That's one option. That when you look at the precarious situation of trying to survive and in, in, in the way in which they do, it becomes an option to many people. And then you look at, on the other hand, some of them say, "Well, I'll go the legitimate route. I'll go to school. I'll get an education." And many of them realize early on that their schools are inadequate and not going to give them the education that's comparable to their counterparts in other parts of the cities. And even if they make it out, they get to school, go to college, 
We still have found that a black man with a college degree and no criminal record has a lesser likelihood of getting a job as a white man with a high school education and a felony record. These are the types of despairing, these are the types of staggering disparate outcomes that we see, this type of discrimination that we see even in the job market. And many people realize that from the, out, from the outset. And they say, why should I go to school? It's not going to adequately educate me. And even if I actually do make it to school and make it through there, I'm still going to have a tougher likelihood of getting a job that's going to allow me to, to provide for myself. So many people run to the corner and they do that. And so they call it a trap because it's a trap on both ends, if you will. This next song I'm going to do, just a second. It's called The Audacity of Dope. And I'm talking about that and just our broader fixation with substance abuse. And one of the things I'm talking about is this larger idea of how opioids and cocaine and other types of, of substances have a gripping effect on all of us, on all of civilizations, and they have for centuries. And it's great that the United States is beginning to change its mind on how we deal with these things. We're now looking at it as a public health crisis. That's what we should be doing. We should be looking at men and women who are struggling with substance abuses, realizing that there are chemical imbalances, that they're struggling with, and they need some help, and that we can use diversionary methods to help them. But for, there's an entire generation for decades who were swept away into prisons for doing the very same things that we now say people deserve empathy for, that we should deal with the compassion. And so the audacity of dope is trying to talk about this broader idea before we get started. And it's talking about the audacity of this little flower. The group has the weed, the seed shriveled into powder. And that powder, men think will give power, but that power will steal, kill, and devour. The Sumerians could find no other plant to compare with it. They call it a hool grill. Joy was its apparent gift, using its euphoric effects more or less for merriment. Snorting it in proportion, and their fellowships passed it on to whomever else would cherish it. It turned that the most devout citizens, the heretics, had other Brannigan pools of embarrassment. And now it's toyed about by us foolish Americans. It is subdued the will of queens, and they're strong enough to bring kings to their knees. And when it contracts a diagram, kings get back the diagrams. Thus themselves off, sober up, but then try again. We'll attack childish wins as desire comes back again. You feel like life is over, and you die within. But it's what goes in the nose. That's the audacity of dope. Imagine the audacity of this little flower. For who passed the weeds, the seed shrivels into powder. And that powder, men think will give power. But that power will still kill and devour. Tyler told the truth when he was passing it on. We sell crack to our own out the back of our homes. We put crack in our songs to call them passionate poems. And when the passion is gone, the attraction is gone. We just start cracking the songs, calling it rap music. Con, they got it right when we call it crack music. But we should change the name to trap music. Because we use bars and hooks to trap you. Kids, and you study James for a path to follow. Plastic bottle. Wanna be a big boy like you hung out with Andre? End up with more tricks in that commercial with LeBron James version. Thugging and hustling. You pretty and clean. Then you toting that right, but you don't know what that means. You think you an example, but you selling a man's bro. Posted up on the block like you trying to be a lamppost. Imagine the audacity of this little flower. Move past a piece of sea, shovels into powder. And that powder, men think will give power. But that power will still kill and devour. Devour. 
optimistic, you don't get it, you're not getting in the plot. The goal of people on the block is to be off the block. So being on the block doesn't end up being your job. They want you in prison after you're smitten by cops. So when all that you're getting, all that you're getting is robbed. That's why they're giving us work. They're not giving us jobs. The war on drugs is a war on us. We don't send boats across the coast. It's in Coke and Venezuela. They invade us, telling us we stay buzz and arrest us for the same drugs they gave us. And they'll make you poison your own. And turn around and go to battle in songs. And it'll turn kings to fiends who wear their life on the scale of triple beams. And with hope the rose, it'll go on the nose. And that's the audacity of dope. Imagine the audacity of this little flower. For who has the beast? And that power, men think will give power, but that power will still kill and devour. It'll turn kings to fiends who wear their life on the scale of triple beams and when hope will roll to the gun of the nose. And that's the audacity of dope. And it's talking about this greater idea that sometimes we look at people in a judgmental way who've fallen victim to that fallen prey to substance abuse when oftentimes many of us could be in very similar situations. Many people more powerful than us have succumbed to that. But then from there I spend a significant amount of time talking about this idea about how a significant portion of hip hop, particularly for these past 25 years, I found different ways to muse about selling these, selling these products. And in many ways, it's what I was talking about before. Some of it is just documented and giving first-hand accounts of what it means to survive, what it means to try to provide for oneself, for one's children. And then as hip-hop became, became industrialized, as it became commercialized, we began seeing that that was perceived as the authentic way to communicate hip-hop. And people began embellishing and creating narratives that were bragging about this idea of selling drugs, this idea of not making pain sound like pain anymore but glorifying the, the, the pain and the difficulty that people had endured previously and gloat about it in songs and gloat about selling cocaine to pregnant women. That's what Big did. Or talking about you, um, that you served your uncle. That's what T.I. has talked about, serving or giving cocaine to your uncle. Many of them began talking about these things in ways that seemed to take away the, the grave implications of what was happening. And then from there, I'll talk about the broader systematic impact of all of these things. These guys selling drugs on, on your corner and your neighborhoods, they don't have boats that are bringing in cocaine and heroin to, into the United States in large number. Many of them don't even have a, a conception of who their connects, connect is, so to speak, where these drugs are coming from. It's a larger, if you will, demonstration of how there are bigger powers at play that are complicit in this larger industry that is crippling neighborhoods and one of the things that if you see Ava DuVernay's 13th, and I recommend everyone who has not seen it to see it, and it's the most important film that you will see this year. One of the things that she does is she talks to different people. She talks, well, she, she assembles a, a who's who, an all-star cast of scholars, of elected officials, and activists, and they talk about not only the idea of how the 13th Amendment is ostensibly was supposed to end slavery, but it, it leaves a caveat that a 
allows for slavery to persist and how the prison industrial complex is a reiteration of slavery and the stigma attached to felons. It's a reiteration of Jim Crow. But one of the things that they talk about is how these things are by design. And one of the things you hear is from the mouth of John L. Reitman, who was the chief domestic policy advisor for Nixon. And one of the things he talks about was how we had two enemies, black people and the anti-war left. And we knew that we couldn't make it illegal to be black or against the war. So what we did was we began vilifying them. We associated the anti-war left with, with, with marijuana, and we, and we associated black people with heroin, and we perpetuated that lie every night on television. And when we did that, we could raid people's homes, we could arrest their leaders, and we could do so with impunity. And he ends this statement by saying, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. This was a broader idea. And this is and, and the thing is, John L. Reitman just came out and said this recently, but these things are anecdotally things that black people have been saying literally for decades, that the war on drugs is not a war on drugs, it's a war on us. And like I said, we don't send boats across the coast to send coke with Venezuela, but they invade us, telling us we stay buzzed and arrest us for the same drugs they gave us. One of the things I also say in that last verse is this idea about how they're giving us work, but they're not giving us jobs. Work is a colloquialism for whatever drugs that you're selling. So if someone says I got that work, that means that I have my product for the day. I can go out and I can sell these things. I, I can get access to work that I can go out and sell and make money. I could be enterprising like that, but I don't have access to a meaningful job with a decent chance of upward mobility that will allow me to make a, a respectful earning and to live in a way that's decent. And many people lack that type of access. And this next song I'm going to do is called Up From Slavery. Many people get squeamish when we talk about slavery in the United States, and they talk about how slavery is a thing of the past and not something that we should dwell on. One thing I emphasize in my courses is twofold. One, slavery, we are not that far removed from slavery. When the Smithsonian opened its Museum of African American History and Culture on September 24th, the woman who rang the opening bell was the daughter of a man born a slave. So we have, some, we have people in this nation who are still alive who can touch slavery. Her father was born a slave. But even in a broader sense, many of, many of, the, many of the injustices that we think about, even like slavery and Jim Crow and the Civil Rights era, we still act like this ancient history. My mother has seen white-only signs. My mother is not 60. We are not that far removed from that reality. We're not far removed from slavery. We're not far removed from Jim Crow, but even in a broader sense, slavery impacted everything that came after it. It's the longest part of American history. And not only that, but it's uniquely embedded in the psyche of America. When Thomas Jefferson sat down at a desk and he wrote the beautiful words of the Declaration of Independence, one of my brilliant colleagues, um, Tiffany Gill, she teaches at the University of Delaware, she'll tell you that most likely the ink that he used, the parchment that he wrote it on, the quill that he wrote it with, was most likely brought to him by a person he owned. When he wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by the creator, certain inalienable rights, all men are created equal. When he talks about these types of things, this, this moving language that we still uh, inspire us every year, and we talk about that made America what it is, he owned people. He did. George Washington the man that we tell children could never tell a lie on 315 people at the time of his death. Come on, come on. 
Thomas Jefferson sired four children with a woman that he owned. Lifetime makes it seem like it was a beautiful love story. You can't do that. I've seen the movie. You can't say yes if you can't say no. You can't say no to someone who owns you. Thomas Jefferson was an old man who was raping a teenage slave. That's a part of who America is. It's the longest part of America. Bless you. Longer than the colonial era, the uh, post-colonial era, uh, longer than the antebellum period. It's longer than the time since we uh, have abolished slavery. At the time in which we had the Declaration of Independence written, we had slavery in the U.S. for almost 150 years. It's uniquely embedded in the psyche of who we are as a nation. And we are here, many of us are here today because men and women persevered through that with no guarantee that they would live to see something else, with no guarantee that they would ever taste freedom. Many of them still persevere beyond that. And in the words of Booker T. Washington, came up from slavery. And so that's what I'm going to talk about here. This idea of for 10 generations, men and women only knew the radical chains, only knew the existence of them being slaves, them being owned, their children being owned, their children's children being owned. And it was one of the more difficult parts in history. And in that, even still, these people got up every morning and persevered beyond that. They came up with slavery. And the thing about it is, these people who were brought from Africa were not slaves. They were made to be slaves. They were people. They were people of God, Yoruba, Ashanti, Ibo, Akan, Oroha, Fanti, Ido, Bakan, Orhobo. This much we know, but Europe was lurking to abscond with our heroes. And with the precious bonding, we became Negro at the dawn of an era of unconscious evil, a beautiful people to finally behold, torn asunder, thrown into dungeons and sheep rolls. This long road to march out of stolen by oligarchs. We thought our souls were lost, stolen, both stolen oceans apart. Curved with bullets inside of our swollen hearts. Our weary cries built the skies, going up to God. Whipped and chained, sold on auction blocks. Toiling long days, growing old cotton crop. Women great children doomed to this awful lie. At night we cried, my God, won't stop if we survived the capture. Strolled the long marsh, lived through the middle passage, could grow that old crop, we survived. Made it through all of the racist schemes and more than bravery. We came up from slavery. We're alive, but they survived through all of the racist schemes and more than bravery. We came up from slavery. We're alive, but they survived through all of the racist schemes and more than bravery. Went free, stood a moment in the sun, making as he came to the place he had begun, like a raisin in the sun whose expectation had become evaporated like the sour grapes that he had drunk. Emancipation had been publicly proclaimed, but each man was facing struggles that would go unchanged. It would go unnamed, but go on the same. Those controlled by change were those who would go on hang. A nation that said it abhorred a shameful past, but relegate blacks to a subordinate racial caste. We strove with Jim Crow, we survived. Made it through all of the racist schemes, 
dreams and more than bravery. We came up with slavery. There are a lot of ways to buy for more of the racist means and more than bravery. We came up with slavery. There are a lot of ways to buy for more of the racist means and more than bravery. We came up with slavery. There are a lot of ways to buy for more of the racist means and more than bravery. We came up with slavery. There are a lot of ways to buy for more of the racist means and more than bravery. Okay. Oh yeah. Is that okay? Okay. So 
The song is called The Miseducation. And in it, I talk about the broken education system. And in it, I also talk about the broader stigma attached to um, young people of color and this idea of they're in schools not only that are underperforming but failing to adequately educate them, but also will not teach them about themselves. Carter G. Woodson wrote The Miseducation of the Negro. And when he did, he talked about this idea about how the Negro, which was the appropriate term at the time, learned about everyone else. They learned about Europeans, they learned about Asians, but they never learned about themselves. And then he talked about this idea of learning trades and the like, but he talked about many of them were learning things like about, uh, what do you talk like? The, um, the literature of antiquity and things like that. He's saying that's not going to get you a job. But not only is it not going to get you a job, but you have now prevented yourself from finding a marketable skill, and you've also prevented yourself from learning about yourself. And so you have now learned to revere others more than yourself on your side. And so in that, he talks about this broader idea. It's not an education that these children are getting. It's actually a miseducation. A miseducation. Fear of the Godhead is the beginning of knowledge And spoken through the words of his statutes and prophets We bow in the shadow of the mighty idols Worshiping the creator, not the creator who God is Wonder why we turn it up, ways are not his When we let idolatry pervade our noggin So the sons of Songhai must make the song cry Lifting battle prayers unto the God who's on high We are the veil seven sons speaking to better tongues Whose eyes are on the prize of the life everyone Cries give rise to new life, will it come? It rarely does. More often the terror comes. The strange fruit still has leaves and buried blood. These intellects don't fear God, but scared of us. If you don't believe, then you can ask Erica. A look across these places in urban America, where you see universities on our curbs and streets. Knowing full well the children on those curbs and streets barely ever learn to read. If those children on those curbs and streets don't learn to read, how are they supposed to go to the universities and earn degrees? The whole situation is discouraging. Children can say the system was never meant to work for me. The seed of the trouble is our only furnishing. We've been at this for centuries. We have blind schools ain't teach me this. They taught me to measure my humanity within three fifths. My schools ain't teach me this. They taught me my people's contributions were infrequent. My Make a store, watch it spin and get torn till the switches for you to store. That's the very thing. 
Lord. Because it can empower you. 
And I talk about you owe it to your ancestors. You owe it to men like Frederick Douglass, who was born a slave and, and secured his freedom. Women like Harriet Tubman, who was, a, who, was, who was a woman and she was a slave. And she, not only that, she had a debilitated, she had debilitating seizures because she got hit in the head when she was a teenager with an iron. But yet she still took it upon herself to not only free herself, but to free others. You owe it to Ida B. Wells, who was a working mother and a wife who wrote for newspapers. And she said, lynchings are the scourge of my day. And I'm going to use my gifts, my talents for writing to expose it. And when people threatened her with death, when they bombed the building that her newspaper was housed in, she kept writing anyway. And I tell them, you owe it to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who died for your right to be where you are, to be in that position. Your ancestors' blood is crying out, calling out to you, and demanding more of you to push yourself. This last song I wanted to do is called The Sweeter Tune of Freedom. And it talks about the universality of struggle. It talks about how, ultimately, we all want what we call freedom. We all want self-determination, self-actualization. The cry for freedom has been a lament throughout the centuries. And so in the first verse, I'm telling the story of a panther in, in, New, in Harlem, New York, in, in 1969. In the second verse, I'm telling the story of a Jewish boy in a concentration camp in 1944. And in the last verse, I'm telling the story of a runaway slave in 1842. All of them are seeking the same thing. So without further ado. We are one people, one kindred, one fellow, lower varying hues of black, brown, and yellow. We come from the same streets, same slums, same ghettos. To live a life whose outcome is always dreadful. That's why we need more. Plunge countless feed the liberty promise where our nation's founders. Washington, D.C. has got hypocrisies and mockeries. The basic voice to keep my people under lock and key. We used to shackle our ankles, now they chain our liberty. Well done. I'm a slave another day. I'll be 
buried in my grave is what I said it today. Leaving this place before I'm a slave another day. I'll be buried in my grave is what I say today. I'm gonna leave this place before I'm a slave another day. Bury me in my grave is what I say today. I'm gonna leave this place and I'm gonna keep on running until my feet come to that beloved place and men go freedom. They say if I leave, I'll be aborting my seed. Cause when it's caught, it'll be recording the stream. But it's so fitting they pin my Lord in the tree. If I must die, at least I'll live according to me. They say the cage burst sings due to the bliss of the cigarettes. Through all the dissonance, he won't miss this life's belligerence. Through the bars, he sees the restoration of his penance. As he hears the sweeter tune of freedom in the distance. He hears the sweeter tune. They say the cage burst sings due to the bliss of his ignorance. Through all the dissonance, he won't miss this life's belligerence. Through the bars, he sees the restoration of his Once more. That's all that, that is what it's all that we're saying. It's all that has been said. 
And in many ways, we've seen a similar lament throughout history, throughout continents, throughout um, geography. It's this idea of people proclaiming that they want to be treated as people. They want an equal footing. They want a seat at the table, so to speak. That's what this is all about. And that's what New City for Young Men is about, this idea of first documenting and prescribing the idea of the problem and, and, and putting a proper lens to what it is, calling things what they are, calling white supremacy what it is, calling mass incarceration what it is, calling police brutality what it is, calling these things out as they are, and then from there hoping to build a structure that can allow for growth, development, and hopefully reconciliation. But you all have been mighty gracious. I appreciate you all for sitting here. It's not easy to sit and listen to anybody for an hour talking about anything. <laughs> but um, if anyone has questions or comments, um, I'll just talk to you about that. Thank you.